For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. You've probably already gotten your first bug bite of the season, but itch is way more than skin deep. I thought that all it was telling us was how do we sense something outside of our body, but it's teaching us how we sense everything, not just outside of our body, not just the five senses, but a thousand senses. This week on Unexplainable, scientists have barely scratched the surface of itch. So how deep does it go? Listen to Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to give you a word from our sponsor, Audible. But this is no normal Audible sponsorship. This is for their new six-part Audible original series, Ponzi Supernova. Ponzi Supernova sheds new light on Bernie Madoff and the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. God, this is made for me. I love con men. I love Ponzi schemes. And I love original audio documentaries. Uh, So as you probably know, Bernie Madoff went to jail for the largest Ponzi scheme in history, but that is definitely not the full story. Uh, This documentary draws on hours of unheard conversations with Bernie behind bars and interviews with the SEC, FBI, and the victims of his scheme. It takes you on a fascinating journey into the dark interior of our financial system. So please follow journalist Steve Fishman as he chases the real story and even talks to Madoff himself. You can listen to Ponzi Supernova for free on Audible or wherever you get podcasts. Yes, that's right, free. I'm not even telling you where to go. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, just look for Ponzi Supernova. Check it out. Six parts. Thank you, Audible. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hello. Hey, you guys. Howdy. I admit that uh, this guest is the product of pure survival of the fittest among books that get sent to us. Uh, I got a book in the mail a few weeks ago. It was American Kingpin by Nick Bilton. It's about uh, the Silk Road saga. And I uh, immediately just started reading it and had to have uh, Nick Bilton on to talk about it. That's one of the secrets to getting on the show is uh, have a really good book. (laughs) (laughs) That's our main piece of advice. Um, Nick Bilton is a longtime technology reporter he was at the New York Times. Now he's at Vanity Fair. He also wrote a book about the origins of Twitter. So I usually, as you can tell, like a technology reporter. <laughs> uh, it's a soft spot of mine, and he's someone I'd wanted to talk to for quite a while. So it was a great conversation. Your uh, Silk Road is also a soft spot of yours. Yeah. There is a certain part of me that I identify as with uh, <laughs> Ross Ulbricht. <laughs> can you just tell people quickly what, what Silk Road is? Silk Road was a drugs website. It was a like a libertarian, dark web place where people were buying and selling drugs. He was a young, pretty naive idealist, you might even be able to say, who went within a period of a couple of years from being basically like a broke graduate student to being at the top of a hundreds of millions of dollars drug empire ordering executions all before he was brought down by a pretty groundbreaking investigation. So the book is actually kind of like flipping back and forth between his narrative and the people who are hunting him. I can see how you would identify with that guy. Because I'm hunted. (laughs) Um, As always, if you're hunting for readers, you got to find them in their email box. No better way to do it than with an email newsletter from MailChimp. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Nick Bilton. Welcome, Nick Bilton. Thank you for having me. I actually, okay, so you got a new book out. I have a it's new It's called book. American Kingpin. Yep. It's about the Silk Road saga. Do you have to give like a lot of two-minute summaries of the Silk Road saga, or has it reached a point in American pop culture? No, it hasn't actually reached a point in American pop culture. A lot of people are always like, what's your next yeah. book? And, and, I, and I would say, oh, it's on the Silk Road, and they'd be like, the Chinese trade route? Yeah. <laughs> and I would say, no, the drug website, the digital Silk Road on the dark web, um, and the Dread Pirate Roberts who ran it who was at least convicted as uh, Ross Ulbricht. Ross Ulbricht, Um, yes. So I read this book. I like vaporized this book this weekend. I was at a bachelor party in Austin, Texas. We were staying 
at an Airbnb in kind of the student area of Austin, which is where this book starts. Where it starts and where a lot of it takes place, yeah. And I was surprised how empathetic I felt towards the main character of this book, considering that he like commits multiple murders, or at least believes he has committed multiple murders. Did where you stand on him as a character change as you were working on the book? Oh, absolutely. As the book starts with this kid from Texas, and he's this this incredibly sweet kid. Um, He, you know, is a Boy Scout, and he loves his parents and his sister and gets straight A's in school. He's incredibly smart. He's the guy that helps old ladies across the street, quite literally. And um, he ends up at Penn State, and he gets really interested in libertarian politics. And up until then, he's the same Ross throughout. And what happens is he gets really into this idea that drugs should be legal, that the government should have no say in what you can and cannot put in your body. And he also gets a little bit radicalized by the idea that he should do something like important with his life. Well, I mean, it, it, I, most people in our generation believe that they should do something yeah. important. They, I think that the whole the reason the selfie exists is so that we leave a mark. You know? Right. And, and I think that there are certain people, especially those that are involved in Silicon Valley and tech in any way whatsoever, that really want to leave a mark. They yeah, really want to I leave mean, we'll get into this, but he fits very much the profile of like this idea of the young man that came of age in the last decade of like the startup founder. Yeah, the he's completely he's driven he's, to he, change the world. He's um, and, and at all costs, and he believes if you can build a website where people can buy and sell drugs or whatever they want without the government telling them what to do, then you can actually make it safer for people to buy and sell drugs and that the government should not be able to tell you what you can and cannot put in your body. So he decides he's going to build a website, calls it the Silk Road, and and using Bitcoin to be able to purchase things, um, the cryptocurrency, and Tor, which is the web browser used to get on the dark web, he opens up shop. And the site quickly kind of erupts. It, it becomes a, a thing. It's kind of a perfect storm that he had like these tools. I mean, yeah. him in a different generation, he's like a suburban psychonaut, like selling well, yeah. acid to local college students. Well, not or even something. that. I don't even think he would have been a, he would have sold acid to anyone. I think in a few years earlier, a few years later, he would have been the kid you went to college with who, you know, sat there blabbing about why the government was bad and then probably ended up working for like a senator or, yeah. you know, or, or a Bitcoin startup. And, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and he, I think that what happened is that it, you're right. It was the perfect storm of, of all these technologies coming together and him having this idea. And um, and so he opens up for business. January 2011, he goes and puts these anonymous postings online saying, hey, you guys should check out the Silk Road. It's selling all these different things. He grows his own mushrooms. He has it like builds a little mushroom laboratory where he – well, I mean, I'm not kidding here. He literally, while watching Breaking Bad – was kind of growing his drugs and uh i empathize with this because i remember going on college and websites about like how to grow mushrooms mm-hmm. in like hay in your dorm room yeah of course i once tried to grow weed on my balcony in college and i think i got like one leaf and then it it just you know it... i tried to grow some weed in an apartment once and i kept blowing out the power in the building every time i turned the <laughs> light on so i knew it was not wired properly uh, that's really funny. Uh, at least you're here to tell the tale. Um, uh, yeah. But yeah, I, but we all do these goofy things. We all do these like silly, you know, like childish things and, that are very naive. And Ross did the same thing. And he was so smart and he was able to kind of pull it all off, you know? Yeah. So this, the website starts. He starts selling his mushrooms on there. A few more people start selling some other mild drugs and so on. Um, and then Gawker, the now defunct website, um, Adrian Chen, blogger there, wrote. Check out his long form. Check out his two long form podcasts. Oh, he's done two. Great. He's great. I, uh, fantastic reporter. Um, so he finds the Silk Road website. And so yeah. I, I spoke to him, interviewed him for the, for the book. And I said, Well, where were you? He was at Cafe Grumpy in, in Williamsburg. And he'd come across it on a forum. And no one had written about it at this point. Adrian's like the like Z Lig of this generation. I know. It is completely. So you're kind of a perfect storm for doing this story also because you've been covering like the leaders of Silicon Valley for the better part of a decade. And he's like this kind of weird, wacky world foil of a startup founder. Yeah, I mean, I've always tried to, I mean, I've been covering tech for for a long, long time. And the thing I've always tried to do is cover the people of the tech culture, not the tech itself. Um, I could really care less about the tech, but the people I think are just fascinating because it's, it's the nerds. It's the kids that literally had no friends or no girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever in high school that all of a sudden are the stars of society. And they run the world these days. And the thing that I've always been so interested in in all of my writing is the good and the bad side of technology. And a lot of the times what the problem is in Silicon Valley is people come up with a good idea that's supposed to do a good thing, you know, to change the world and make it a better place. And it ends up inevitably having 
a recourse that they don't imagine. Isn't it, a lot of that bad, the people part? Like, isn't a lot of yeah, the of bad course. is like well, when the you people, sort of apply people to these like abstract ideas and people don't really behave the way that you expected them to? Well, of course, but that is the the problem, but also the responsibility of tech, which is what bothers me the most about the tech culture. So Facebook, let's make a Facebook news feed so people can share what they're doing, which of course becomes a place for people to share fake news and, and, and so on and so forth. And then of course, now there's the Facebook suicides and, and murders and so on on Facebook Live. And then the 3D printers. You know, I, I was part of a group called NYC Resistor years and years ago. And the guys there started building 3D printers. And I remember saying, what are you guys going to do? What are they? What are yeah. you going to make? And they I said, oh, that. we're going to print iPhone cases and wall hooks and plastic forks. What's the first thing people made with them? 3D printed plastic guns. But they, they had no idea. They didn't think right. like, oh, people are going to make guns. It never even entered their mind. And the same thing happened with Ross Ulbricht. You know, he had this idea to legalize drugs because he thought it would make the world a better place. But what he didn't realize was it was going to enable 12-year-olds to buy drugs and overdose and die and help contribute to the opioid epidemic in America because you can now buy fentanyl from these Chinese labs directly to your home in the Midwest. And, you know, we're seeing the results of that now. And didn't he also not realize that once you create a giant drug market, you've also created a huge amount of like capital and there's massive stakes to what you're doing. And that's a time when people start murdering each other or crossing each other. You know, I think that he had this idea for the site and he thought it was going to be an experiment. He yeah. thought, didn't think a lot of people would use it. He'd had a bunch of failures, one after the other after the other. And, and people did use it. And he became so enamored with the idea that it was actually going to prove his thesis correct. He believed that, I mean, he was, uh, there was points where he's literally making, the site is processing hundreds of millions of dollars in, in drug sales and gun sales and poisons and so on and so forth. And there's an undercover DE agent who starts working for him and they're having this conversation and he says, you know, when do you think you'll stop? The DE agent says this and and Ross says, I, I think that I'll only stop when I succeed in overthrowing the drug laws. And, and he really believed that he would get to a point that the site would grow so big that the U.S. government would come along and say, oh, you know what? Here's an example of legalizing drugs actually makes the world a better place. Let's legalize drugs. And so th there's this kind of larger than life mentality that takes over these people in the same way that it has with, you know, the CEO of Uber and uh, Facebook and, and other stuff. I was going to head down that road. So yeah, it's completely. a little... I'm not sure serendipitous is the right word, but to have these two, like, if this was happening in a novel, I would call it a little bit nail on the head kind of characters with your book coming out. Yep. And um, the story Mike Isaac wrote in the New York Times about Travis Kalanick, who's the CEO of Uber. You don't have to go very far to say, like, there's something overlapping about these personalities and what they're doing in well, the it's world. Not even it's not even overlapping with what they're doing. It's overlapping with what they say and, and everything. So, you know, uh, Ross Ulbricht would share both as the Dread Pirate Roberts, the pseudonym he used to run the site, and as Ross Ulbricht on his social networks. He would share the same quotes that Travis Kalanick of Uber does. You know, like he would they read the same Ayn Rand books. Yeah. They had the same libertarian philosophies as Peter Thiel, too. It just so happens that Travis decided he was going to disrupt the taxi industry and Ross decided he was going to go off the drug industry. But you could flip those two around and I guarantee it would be the same people running the same companies and, and, right. and nary a different personality. But what's actually, to me, what's unique about Ulbricht is he's a real radical in a way that Travis Kalanick's not. He doesn't like go off and, and buy some flashy clothes or, well, or run his I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you're not a radical if you buy fancy clothes and fly in private jets. That's true. I, I think that it's more that, you know, Travis wants to win at all costs. So yes. does Mark Zuckerberg. So did Steve Jobs. So do all these CEOs in the Valley. That is all they care about. It is not about the money. Most of the Marority could walk away with billions of dollars today. It's about winning. Um, yeah. And it's about leaving that legacy behind that Ross Ulbricht wanted to leave behind. And with Ross, it was no different. And it got... For him, he was so intent on winning that he, he got to a point where he was perfectly fine, you know, pulling off hits on people and having people murdered and killed. At least Which, that's what he thought. But yeah, were any of the hits real? Uh, they don't think that they were. Um, we don't want to give too much away for the people okay. reading the book. But <laughs> but there was, of course, there was the one that was staged by the DA. Right. There's one that's clearly fake the and the other ones fake. are suspicious. The other ones are suspicious. Yeah. Um, uh, if they were real, I think that he probably would have gotten the death penalty. So I would imagine that they're, they're probably... So, Not. like, how did this project come to you? 
Uh, I mean, there's got to be like yeah. when this was happening, every magazine writers in America is like, oh, that story, that one. That yeah, one. Yeah. yeah, no, pretty much. And I thought the same thing. What happened was I lived in San Francisco at the time when this had happened. And I actually lived in this little area of San Francisco called Glen Park. And I used to walk my dog past this library every day. It's tiny, tiny library. And I found out when Ross was arrested, he was arrested at that library like two blocks from my house. And I was so amazed, even for someone who had seen people like Jack Dorsey who ran Twitter and, and other founders come up with an idea, be nobodies with no money or anything, or no friends essentially in the Valley, and then become billionaire CEO moguls. It was still the most flabbergasting thing to see that a kid from Texas had been running the biggest drug site on the internet from the library two blocks from my house. And um, Part and of so- what's shocking or was shocking to me about that was we say that Jack Torsey and you know various other people started Twitter, but they had like teams of programmers over time. This is truly like a solo work, and I mean, he yeah. did get other people. He, he to hired work other people, but he started it from there. There's a there's a section in the book I think when he first starts the site where I say he was essentially like a startup of twelve. You know, yeah. he was the marketing manager, the CEO, the COO, the programmer, the front end developer, the back end, the server guy, the drug dealer, the you know the drug supplier, the drug maker. I mean, all of that stuff. And the he, difficulty of not knowing any PHP and starting a site like that over the course of two years. Yeah, I mean, and, it took me two years to be able to like edit like WordPress sites, really which is like I similar. Technology. I still don't understand how my website works. Um, no, I completely agree. I, you know, I did some very novice programming years ago, and um, and I hit a wall at a certain point when there was certain parts of Python I just couldn't figure out. And I was like, all right, well, I guess that's not for me. But Ross, you know, he he was he was incredibly smart. And there was a point though that where he did get stuck, and he had to bring a friend on board. Um, and uh, this guy, Stephen Bates, right, which was one of his numerous small but significant mistakes. Yeah, he he made a lot of small, very 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 small, but very very significant mistakes. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold for just a second and uh, tell you about a new podcast I think you should check out. It's called Fan Club. And today, you know, we're all fans of something. Me, I'm a uh, Boston sports fan. That is my insane fandom. That's like my family's religion, if we have one, is Boston sports. And uh, I'm a homer. I'm a total homer. But with everything changing about the way that we consume culture these days and the way we consume sports, the way fandom works is changing too. And that is why I want to tell you about this new podcast about exactly that change. It's called Fan Club, and it's about why we love what we love. It's a short, limited-run series. It's hosted by a guy named Ross Martin, who's maybe thought more about fandom than anyone else on Earth. He's dedicated his career to marketing and innovation and entertainment. He's one of uh, Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. He's a three-time Emmy winner, and uh, he's funny, which is why you're going to want to follow along as he tries to figure out the future of how people are going to watch and listen and consume culture. He talks to all these amazing, brilliant people from across the pop culture landscape, musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the years to come. Fan Club is going to change the way you think about the things you love. Subscribe now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you're listening to this show. So how did you learn how to do this stuff? What was your first job in writing? Like, what was your first like, I never wanted to be gig? a writer. Yeah. It was never my dream job, ever. Uh, <laughs> still not? Still not your dream job? No, I love it. I absolutely, it, it found me. I didn't find it. Yeah. Um, uh, what I, did you want to do? I wanted to do two things. I first wanted to be a fine artist. Um, and uh, I went to the School of Visual Arts to, to study fine art, and I had this goal that I thought was going to be a lifelong goal was to be able to paint photorealistically, mm. and it took about six months, and then I was like, oh, now what do I do? And do I want to spend the rest of my life just painting photorealistically? I could just buy a camera. And so I started um, I started switching majors all the time. I was like, okay, I'm going to do fine art. I'm going to do computer art. I'm going to do graphic design, and eventually they said, you, you can't switch anymore. And I was like, well, I'm still going to take these other classes I want to take. I was t- taking psychology classes for art therapy and programming classes, you, just everything. Um, and so I started going to all these different classes that I was not signed up for. And I was writing down other students' names and stuff. And and I, I got this is kind of old Brickian as very well. Very no, I've definitely I've definitely got that uh, that that spirit in me. So I, I got caught, and they were like, "You owe us." I was like thirty thousand dollars for all these classes you've taken. Over oh, they the last they year like left the tab running on yeah, your tab. Yeah, and I was like, I don't have that money. And they were like, well, you can't come back to school. So I didn't get my degree. So um, 
So then I, I it was it was in the it was in the late nineties and there was this thing called the internet and all these startups that were that were starting and I started working I started literally I was designing web banners. Uh, and one of the companies I designed them for was about.com. And um what software are we talking about in this period of time? This is like flashy flash, kind of stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. Adobe Flash. And so I'm designing web banners and at the same time I was really good on the computer doing like Photoshop Illustrator stuff. I was also doing some package design and somebody came along to me one day and they were like, we need you to design the package for a doll for this like new star that's this pop singer. And they were like, we'll pay like $15,000. And I was like, oh my God, it was like an extraordinary work again. And so I designed it. It turns out it was Britney Spears. Uh, so I designed the very first Britney Spears doll. And then I took the money and I... That someone's putting that on your Wikipedia page right I know. now. And so I take the money, I go travel around Europe and Northern Africa for six months, like I've like retired. And then I came back and then the bubble burst. And so I was taking classes at NYU. I was did a couple of journalism classes and photo classes. And my dream job was to be a war photographer. I have the design background and I did some documentary film stuff and things like that. And I thought, well, how do I get how to become a war photographer. And so I used the design job to get eventually into the New York Times. I had like 16 interviews for like dozens of different jobs that I kept getting turned down for. And finally, they hired me so I would stop harassing them. And I was there for a few years designing the style section and the business section. And, and But all the time, I would you know, fix people's computers. So like my boss would be like, my iPod's not working. I'd be like, oh, let me figure it out. Or, or I need the software. And I'd be like, oh, I'll get it for you. And it, so eventually what happened was um, someone's like, why don't you try writing tech stuff? I feel like that story is anomalous. Not many people get like, hey, you're in ad sales, but like, have you ever no, thought it's to- about it's arts coverage? No, it's completely anomalous. But, but what would happen is um, I would sit in the business meetings and somebody would be pitching a tech story and I'd be like, oh, what about this angle? And it was just because I was like a nerd that read all this stuff and was really fascinated by it. And and they started kind of listening to me. And actually what happened was, uh, to be to- I'll be totally honest here today. Uh, what happened was... Um, I had never really written anything. So when um, you thought you'd be a war reporter, you were like, I'm just going to go to a war zone. No, I didn't I'll want learn, to be a reporter. I'll, I wanted oh, to be a photographer. photographer. Ah, okay. You didn't have to write with photos. Yeah, you're just um, like, I'll just get like a nice DSLR. And yeah, just and get I'll on just go, and go, go out there it. in the field and, and hope, hope I don't get blown up. And uh, so anyway, so I, I'm at lunch with one of the editors and I'm, I was thinking about leaving and going to Google News. I was talking to Google about going over there. And um, this is like 2009. And I'm also doing a lot of public speaking for the Times about like the future of media because I had worked in the research labs there. And I mentioned this to one of the editors and I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to leave. And he's like, oh, it's a shame we can't keep you. And I say, what are you guys doing with that blog, the tech blog that, you know, no one ever writes for? And he's like, well, no one wants to write for the blog because they all want to be in the paper. And I was like, I would do it. Not realizing the words that just came out of my mouth. And he was like, why don't we try it? Yeah. And, and also so, not realizing that like all of the tech readership was going to be online. Yes, no one realized. I didn't know. No one. No one had any no idea. One, if there's one thing you don't want to be a print reporter, and it's like gadget reporting. Yes, exactly. I mean, they did realize because Gizmodo and those things were around, but at yeah. the times, no right. one realized. Um, so I was like, oh my god, what the hell did I just sign up for? And so they were like, do you want to try it? So I, I I go into the newsroom, and I was supposed to have like a two week period, you know, getting my bearings and everything as as a as a blogger for the paper. On the first day in the newsroom, and I'm sitting in front of my computer, and an editor comes over to me, and he says, I know you're not starting right now, but um, Twitter just went down. Can you write a blog post, just a real quick blog post? And I looked at him, I was like, yeah, yeah, totally, I got it. And I turned around, and I, and I was like, how the hell do you write a blog post? And and I realized, I was like, oh, my, this is terrifying. Do you don't even like know what the word count of a blog I, no, post I didn't is? No, I didn't know what software we were using, whatever. And um, so I Googled it. I was, I'm not kidding. I was a reporter at the New York Times and I Googled how to do it. I mean, it's worked for the Trump campaign. It worked for the, it worked, it worked for everyone. Come on, everyone like kind of makes it up until they get there. But the, most people don't make it up at the New York Times. Um, so it took me so long to write this 300 word blog post that um, the site was back up and they were like, oh, don't worry about it. And so I spent the next two weeks reading every single article in the archives from like Bill Keller and. Uh, you know, all the great reporters, John Markoff, all these people that I had read my whole life. And I just did a crash course in journalism and was like, okay, this is a lead. This is a nut graph. This is how you do it. And because I had known so many people in tech, I was able to break a lot of stories while I was learning how to write. And I had unbelievable editors that taught me everything. But so I, I, I learned on the job. What was it like doing that within the confines of the New York Times where it's not like, hey, no one's going to see this blog post. <laughs> like you're like, Erasing and creating fortunes a little bit with some. No, of well, I well, actually, no one was seeing the blog posts. Thankfully, you know, the blog was not the main thing. You know, the numbers I don't remember what they were, but we within the first few months that I started, we actually started to double the numbers. And the reason for that was because 
I was just putting out so much content. I had to write like three blog posts a day. And in doing that, I was learning. I had this amazing editor, this guy, Damon Darlin, who really taught me the ropes and was very patient with me when I screwed up a few times. And um, uh, What were your big screw-ups? Oh, like I once tweeted something about Mark Zuckerberg not caring about privacy and it ended up on the 7 o'clock news. It was oh, like really? everywhere. And Facebook was threatening not to work with the paper anymore. And it was it was pretty bad. And then I had a lot of screw-ups. What, what, like, what is the relationship between... I mean, in my experience, startups are all clamoring for coverage. But then at a place like The Times, you have access to the startups that are large it's not, enough. It's not just The Times. It's everywhere. I think that they, yeah. the biggest lie in journalism is that people don't talk to journalists. And the right. reality is... Every company, they'll talk on background or what, you know, it's just the reality of the game and they have to work together. It's what they do. It's symbiotic. Uh, and um, But for someone like the Times, let's say that, like the relationship between the Times and Facebook. Yeah. You can be like working at like yay old gadget blog and be like, new Facebook app fucking sucks, suck a dick. And it's kind of like water under the bridge. For the Times and Facebook, they're in kind of a, like a long term relationship. Like... That's something that the Times is going to be covering Facebook for as long as Facebook exists. Same with Apple, Microsoft. These are like established players who are like opening and closing the robe a little bit here. Yeah, and I and I think there are sometimes stories that are written where the robe is closed for a while. I mean, I, I remember I was writing about, um, uh, I won't say the company, but I was writing about a, a pretty big company. And I wrote a few really nice articles because they've done some really cool stuff. And then I called one day and I said, hey, I need to comment for the story I'm doing, which is a very negative, very, very negative story. And the PR person said, I was waiting for this call. Like I knew I was going to get a lump because we'd had a couple of nice ones. And and after the story ran, it was they told me it was fair. We get it. And, yeah. um, and that's it. But there are times where there are stories that are written that strain relationships. I mean, there was the point when the Times had done the Apple series yeah. that they won a Pulitzer for. And uh, and the, there was not a very good relationship between the company and the paper for a while. We've had a problem in long form when we've been editing it, where this is true of both technology and business, and particularly as, like, I'd say technology and business have become more synonymous in their coverage, where most of the longer feature writing um, falls into either this is sort of a regurgitated press release talking about how awesome this is, or it's a takedown. There's like very little subtle space, um, I sort of in that. that good and bad that we talked about. I, like, I agree with that. Completely. Where is the like? Where do you look for the gray when you're covering technology? I guess Twitter, yeah. on social media. I guess there's no. Um, you're completely right. You know, it's it's either a regurgitated press release, yeah, um, or it's you know. I mean, I I'm always still to this day amazed at how many people go to press conferences. So it's either that or it's a big takedown, and then there are these exclusives, which, you know. I mean, I think most of them are quite pathetic, honestly, because you get the access that I've always thought access was not a good thing because it means you're not getting the real story. But, you know, I think consumers of news, people who read this stuff, they see it very black and white. You know, yeah. there's the story you broke that has X, Y and Z in it and is probably bad. Or there's the other thing. And I don't think there's much in the middle. And there is a little bit of a feeling like you were talking about with like you know, a company taking a lump where it's kind of like puff, puff, lump. Where like the yeah, same- Yeah, and I think reporters have to do, you know, a good reporter, I remember my editor Damon saying to me, I, I once did a piece very, very early on where, on Jeff Bezos and the Kindle, and I was, I don't know, ragging on the Kindle. And all of these, um, a few bloggers and all these, you know, Amazon fans, they storm, remember the old Kindle that looked like a Blackberry, mm -hmm. the, the like square one? And they all came after me, it was Christmas day. And I was like, like, Oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. And he said, you got to take your lumps. And I think, you know, it's the same for companies, same for journalists. How long did it take you from the point when you were Googling how to write a blog post to where you <laughs> felt comfortable, where you're like, I don't need to be spending my time trying to be like able to do this. I can actually start like thinking about what I want to do within this and have, you know, get my ideas into it. I still read other people's writing and think, wow, that's amazing. I wish I could do that one day. You still um, keep that um, how to write a blog post No, I do not. I do not your... do, do that. Um, once I started at the Times writing, I was doing so much of it. I mean, it was literally like three, four, five blog posts yeah. a day and just 
churning out content and um you had the unfortunate like to be like coming online just as like gizmodo was like we yeah. got a night editor we're just going all yeah. like we're not gonna <laughs> stop and you're like yeah. ah it's just me here and i you know i started writing blog posts on my phone and on the way to the, on the subway and then like while i was in the bathroom and you i mean everywhere i could and and i was hungry you know I, yeah. I wanted to learn i wanted to prove myself i wanted to break stories and um and it was a really fascinating point in time when tech was moving away from those specialized blogs to specialized areas of the New York Times and so on. And I remember, you know, doing more stuff for the paper and getting my first A1 story and still feeling like, okay, I've, you know, I've got so much to learn. And I still to this day feel that way. But, but so, but there was one point a few years ago when I, I was like, I wonder when I'll hit my 10,000 hours. And so I did the math and I was like, whoa, I'm at like 30,000 hours already. And I kind of just sailed through it. And and I think you just kind of it becomes muscle memory after a little while. And and the the thing that's really been important to me is to continue to push myself and learn more and more and more and and read amazing books that I think are you know I learned so much from reading fiction books and amazing pieces in the the Times and New Yorker and things like that. And you just learn f- from it all. So you were involved in this incident um, regarding the use of uh, devices on planes wasn't an incident. It was a series of in- it was a series of reports. Yeah. A series of uh, of reports that eventually led to um, a change in the rules regarding right. um, using iPhones and iPads on, on planes. Yeah, or all tablets on planes. I guess. Yeah. So I um, my blog post started to become like little columns a little bit, and so I approached the Times about becoming columnist, and so we would like let's give it a shot and see how it works out. And and somebody, I think it was David Carr, had said to me. Um, uh, pick a fight with someone, but pick a fight you can win. You know, that's the importance of a column is like that you're not just you writing like, something, you're picking airlines. fights. And I was like, <laughs> let me take on the FAA and the airlines. Uh, and so I was on a plane, it was Thanksgiving, and I was reading, on my, I was at the end of a book on my Kindle. Um, and I'm a voracious reader, I love reading books. And I was like, it was like two pages to go at the end of this book, and the flight attendant came up to me and said, you've got to turn that off, sir. Can't have it on for land. And I'm like, it's a Kindle. It is a calculator. Yeah. Literally, that's all this is. The Kindle is um, particularly egregious because, like, you know, it doesn't do anything. anything. It would be nice if it did do something. Yeah. Well, but it, it look, doesn't if, do anything. If, if you were a terrorist, you wouldn't need bombs. You just buy a Kindle, get, go on the plane, turn it on, and that would be the end of the day. And so I was so f- pissed off by what had happened that I actually think I wrote a column on the plane on the way back from from New York or wherever it was. And I filed it. And I didn't think anything of it. And it was actually, I think it published right before Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving weekend. It it exploded online. I mean, more than anything I'd ever done. And um, we had this this chart that they built at the New York Times in the research labs where you could see how a story was spreading on Twitter. And it was just like an explosion in this chart. And I was like, huh, maybe I'm not the only person that's pissed off about this. And my argument was essentially that, like, you know, Here's a number of flights that take place every single year and so on and so forth. And yet there have been no incidents as a result of devices. And let's just say if you take 0.1% of people who accidentally left their cell phone or their their laptop or their Kindle, you would have had at least one incident. So from that, I decided, okay, well, there's, there's something here. And so I went and I spoke to the FAA and they gave me this complete nonsense thing about how there are four things that you can have on a plane. A heart monitor, electric razor, like a recorder device, dictaphone, and like some sort of hearing aid or something. And so I went to a lab in Palo Alto where they do um, frequency testing, EMF testing for devices for the government. And the people who ran the lab were as incensed as I was about this. And we tested all these devices in this lab. It was an amazing, amazing space. It's like this cavernous room with that looks like it's a giant recording studio with this foam on the walls and everything. And then there's a little table in the middle of this giant room with all these devices pointing at it. And you walk out of the room and they turn it on and they, they test it all. And so we did an electric razor. We did the tape recorder. We did a, you know the Kindle and everything. And it turned out that the Kindle put off like 0.0001 decibels less than the than the electric razor or the things like that. So I published that article, and then it started a whole series of them. And eventually, after about, I think, a couple of years of this, it got to a point where there was such an uproar about it that um, the FAA uh, was forced to change the rule. Did you get pushback at the times where they were like, hey, um, your job here is not to try to get, no, like, there was, um, there Kindles was one, on planes. I did get one thing, one, one little piece of pushback, which was, 
uh, they were like, well, you know, this is the New York Times and we have to offer both sides of the opinion. And yeah. so we want you to, to write a piece about the other side of it. And oh, I was like, there is no other. I, was, I, w- I went off and I said to my editor, I was like, what do we do about the other side of it? There is no other side. It's also, you know, one of the things with like a story for the Times is you have to get the analyst quote that's the positive and the right. one that's the negative and they both have to be in there. And I couldn't find the negative one. You know, the only person that would say anything was the FAA. And at this point, I remember I called the FAA at one point during during this, these stories and I said, hey, this is Nick Bill from the New York Times. And they were like, oh, God. Literally, that's what the woman said on the phone. You don't really have the chance with Ulbricht because he's in a federal prison. Yeah. But in the case of your previous book, about the forming of Twitter, and you know, you've covered people like Jeff Bezos. What's your relationship like with these people who are billionaires? You're a plucky New York Times reporter. Well, I'm not a plucky, New York plucky Times, former plucky, New York Times. At the Fair time, reporter. you're a plucky. Um, um, I like some of them. I don't yeah. like others. Yeah. I think some of them are good people. I think some of them are very bad people. Um, you know, I always try to give them the benefit of the doubt, um, yeah. as I think most reporters do. But I also feel bad for some of them i think that they're all very they're kind of lost uh in many respects you know there's something that they haven't reached i'm really lucky that i have an amazing family i have an amazing wife and a two-year-old and a two and a half month old and we don't get a lot of sleep and and a great dog and and i you know i'll come home after this trip and i'll turn my phone off and i'll spend the time with them and for me that's more important than how this book does or right. how my magazine stories do it's it's literally there is nothing in my life more important than that was that a shift you had to make from the period where you're like i can do 17 blog posts oh, absolutely. a day yeah 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 I mean, what, everyone like, what, goes... what was the limit like where did you turn around that corner there was a point it was funny there was actually the when that happened was um was with the Twitter book, and what had happened was I, my all I wanted was to be on the New York Times bestseller list. That was it. I didn't care how many copies sold, whatever. And I remember I hit the list, and I was only on for like a week or so, a week or two. And and I was complaining to my wife about it, and she said, "You know, you could have been number one, and you would only have been number one for a week, and it yeah. wouldn't have been enough." And and then a little while after, my mom actually passed away, and I had my first son, and and so on. And and having those experiences, I realized that the, all of these, it's actually really funny because there's a moment in the book in American Kingpin where Ross is talking to one of his friends and his friend has this realization that these big events in your life and a workplace scenario, this kid Renee, he says, they're fleeting. They make you feel good for a moment and then yep. you're looking for the next one. And Ross disagrees and he says, no, I feel like that's what it's all about is, is attaining that thing because he hadn't reached it. Yeah. Um, and I went through that, and I could definitely identify with with both of them. Um, and uh, and I had this feeling of yeah, it's important to do great work, and it's yeah. what it's a body of work that you can look back on, you can be proud of, you can look at the things you screwed up on and learn from them, and so on. But at the end of the day, they're just they're just things, you know. And I think that that your friends and your family and um, and the people you care about are it's what it's all about. I thought you were going to bring up right there the scene in American Kingpin where they start talking about. I, I want to call it the gambler's dilemma, but I don't think it's a dilemma. It's like the gambler's dilemma. That's right. It's hy- called the gambler's dilemma. Yeah, the gambler's dilemma, which is basically the house has enough money to keep taking your bets forever. Correct. So and that's true. if you're going to stay yeah. there until you lose a bet, you will lose. You have a yeah. 100% chance of winning, of, of losing um, if you keep betting forever. If you say, I'm going to bet five times, you have uh, a chance to win. But if you're wired so that you continually double down, and, and that strikes me as American kingpin. That yep. strikes me as the people behind Twitter, mm-hmm. um, Travis Kalanick, all these people. You look at Travis Kalanick and you go like, why didn't this guy just go, oh, completely. I did some shady what? shit to get on top, but now I'm going to clean up my act a no, little bit. No, but also, why didn't the guy just say, we built a $68 billion business. I don't need to be a jerk anymore. Or, yeah. or why didn't Jack Dorsey say, you know, look at the impact I've had on the world. Maybe I don't need to have a billion users on my site. Maybe 300 million is enough and yep. I just need to make it better for them. And it's not them, it's everyone. And it's social media makes it worse where we're like, how many likes did you get? You know, oh my God, I've got to see how many people commented on that photo on Instagram. Is that technology though or is that also capitalism? Like is part of that about how like technology is making things that are supposed to eventually become like publicly traded companies and that there's like a fiduciary responsibility towards like infinite growth? I I say yes to both. The gambler's dilemma is kind of capitalism. Well, I mean, if you want to go down that route, like capitalism, I think, is it is evident that it is a broken system. You you know, there are six people in the world who have as much wealth as 3.6 billion people in the world. 
we and, and it's only going to get worse. I'll, you want to yeah. take a technology route angle to this? Yeah. Driverless cars, right? Sure. Um, I believe truly, and you can hold me to this, that driverless cars will have a bigger impact on society than any technology has in the last hundred years. It will make the internet and more cell so phones than the than the like mobile computer. You think? Way more than the mobile computer. I think that it's you know. And it's going to happen at such a rapid speed, and it's not going to happen tomorrow. Yep. It's not going to happen in two years. Maybe it'll be five or ten or twenty, but it'll happen in the same way that the smartphone happened um, at a very rapid speed. The industrial revolution took place over about seventy years, right? It wasn't like people woke up and there were machines sewing their sweaters and farming and so on and so forth. Um, it was a very slow rollout. But with technology, the, you know, the smartphone's ten years old, yep. and there are billions on the planet, and um, there are one and a half million. Android phones that are activated every single day. Um, And so what will happen with driverless cars is that, and artificial intelligence and so on, is that it will take over so quickly that we won't even know what's happened. And the prediction is that that in 20 years, 24 million jobs, this is the very low-end prediction, 24 million U.S. jobs will vanish. The high-end prediction is seven out of 10 jobs in America will disappear. Um, How will that happen? Uh, there are 10 and a half million truckers that will be out of work. It's not just the truckers. It's the people that work at the rest stops and the fast food booths and the gas station attendants and, you know, all the people that drive Ubers and Lyfts and, and taxi drivers and all of these things. And that's just one thing. That's just cars, right? And so you're going to get to a point where we're going to have this system where the people who run these companies are going to be astronomically wealthy and the people who used to work for them are not going to have a job. So what's your choice? a universal basic income where we just pay people. You think the Republicans are going to let that happen? They won't even give health care to people who are dying. Then they're going to give them a universal basic income. And so I think that the experience we've seen with Brexit and Le Pen and, and Trump and so on is this pushback against capitalism and this hope that that we will, you know, have a more nationalist society where people will be able to get jobs again. But the reality is the people that are running these countries now are not equipped for the driverless cars and the artificial intelligence that are going to come. And I think we're going to find ourselves in a really, really, really screwed up situation. I'm going to take like a 45 degree turn here yeah. because I would I could just talk to you forever about this. But instead of asking you about the ideas, I'm going to ask you about how you would cover that. So you've covered all these things that are like, almost everything you cover has like a blank face when you start. Like, Dread Pirate Roberts. This yeah. is like an enigma. Yeah. People who created Twitter, uh, up until a point, they're not really famous. They're not like really like celebrities. And then you have this prospect of driverless cars. Literally a story that does not have people in it. Um, it's about people's role receding in the world. Yeah. So as a writer, how do you think about like telling those stories? Well, it's funny because you know I've been exploring. Okay, what's my next book? Yeah. Um, which is a sadistic thing to ask because uh, it's such a process to write and and sell a book. You know, it's actually harder to sell a book than it is to write one. Believe it or not. I believe it. Uh, in our ADD society, and one of the things I was talking about was what about AI, artificial intelligence, driverless cars? And I said to my editor, I said, you know, the the best way to to cover it would be one of two ways. One is the story of a someone who runs a driverless car company and then someone who loses their job as a result of it. And you cover them as people and how they change over time. The yeah. problem is you can't predict who and when and, and all those things. It would be like a 10-year gamble. Um, yeah, it's like one of those documentaries where you have to like live with someone for 10 years. And yeah, it's the, like the 7, 14. Yeah, exactly. And you hope that they don't like you know go off and live on a hippie commune in the middle of it. Um, but but you can start that process. You have to find the pe- – it's all about the people. It's right. all about how it affects the people. I, I do a – How did you go after like Ulbricht? When you started this book where you're like, how am I going to get who Ulbricht is? Um, when I started the book, I wanted to understand – yeah, I really wanted to understand the argument of his belief of why drugs should be legal. Interesting. Um, and my belief kind of – the more I read and the more I learned, my belief system on it changed. And then I also wanted to know, you know, how does a guy – that everyone refers to as the sweetest guy in the room and the smartest guy in the room become this guy who's willing to pay for murders for people that he's never met before or who doesn't think about the fact that these drugs that he's selling could cause kids to overdose, you know, teenagers to overdose. And that was for me, it was it was the human aspect of who he was and how he changed. Um, and I felt like almost like I was reading about like the, the, the time I most felt like this was when I've read about the Cuban Revolution. Where you have all of these like idealists against like totally extreme odds, win yeah. win faster than they thought they were going to win, and yeah. then it's like and then, day two summary executions. 
Yeah. Like, yeah, no, it's completely. The minute you get no, power, you have to start murdering people. Well, to it's keep funny the power. you said that because there's a there's a point in the story where Ross Ulbricht there's a revolution that takes place on the Silk Road where he changes the um, the commission the, the commission fees, um, and it used to be variable based on how much you sold, and he decides to make it like almost a flat rate. And people are revolting. They're like, I don't want to pay that six percent or whatever it was. And he responds with this. He loses his his temper essentially on the site, and he writes this post about. How he's got to make money. This isn't a nonprofit, and like he's like, you know, wasn't a very smart way. He realized later he probably shouldn't have done it. But he ends his speech with the same speech used during the uh, Cuban Revolution. It's like about how we'll be prosperous and everything will, you know. I did not he, even catch that. That was like I, to, I, 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 like, I actually, I saw the line and I was like. That's weird. Where have I seen that before? And I pasted it into Google and I was like, holy shit, it was it's like it's maybe the same. Ross, maybe Ross Albrecht was Googling like gaining power, then you have <laughs> to kill people. How do I do it? Uh, but then he, soon after that, he, you know, one of his employees, he, he believes, steals money from his site and, and yeah. he hires an undercover DA agent to kill him. Is this going to be a movie? Um, Is that a sore topic? No, it's not. No, it's, it's, you know, I mean, Hollywood. You it know, reads like a movie. Well, like, I, 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 it's cut up into these like uh, cliffhanger cable, like. Yeah. It's, Tune in um, next week, kind of chapters. It, well, it's, it's very it's seventy one sh- very short chapters. Um, a couple, couple, some of them are just a couple of pages each, and that that's I believe you have to write for your audience and the, yep. the age that you live in, and also there has to be an arc. You know, I right. to write my books, I studied a lot about how to write murder mysteries. Mm. Uh, I read a ton of books from people who specialize in like those you know those quick read murder mystery books and learned a, a ton from them. What like what's the secret to a good murder mystery? There's a bunch of different secrets. Um, uh, one thing is that a lot of people forget to do is you've got to kind of dis- you, you paint the room right, yeah. Which, uh, obviously, but you really need to kind of describe all the senses. What do you hear? What do you smell? Like when was the last time you read a story in the New York Times where they describe how it smells? Mm. They don't because yeah. it's not really relevant to the thing. So I try to do that, like the, the, the you know the pungent smell of the magic mushrooms or whatever that smelled like like earthy shit and uh, or like the burning paper or whatever. Um, and when you hear that, you you think it. You can kind of like almost smell it when you read it. Um, you have to give every character a mother, believe it or not. That's one of the secrets. Um, I noticed that you don't have very much with his parents. Like, I don't it, have much with his parents. It felt like you had a lot of like his generation and less of like the supervising generation in terms of the sources for the book. Well, I didn't get to talk to his parents. I, I met them at the trial, and and but I also felt incredibly bad for them. Oh, so you were already working on this during the trial? I started working on it. Okay. I went to the trial. How long ago no, was that? I mean, that's not that long ago. No, it was uh, 2015, so yeah, just two years, two years ago. ago. Yeah, um, October 2015, I believe. Uh, um, Do they I, believe him to be innocent or not? Uh, no, no, I mean, I'll, I I can't speak for them, but I'm pretty sure that they do know it was him. Yeah. Um, but I, it's so difficult because um, his mother, Lynn, is fighting for his appeal for, you know, they sold their house. They, you know, yeah. like there's this like really sad photo on Facebook of his mom and his dad standing in front of the house that his dad built and they'd had to like sell everything to go to New York to pay for their son's defense fund. And, um, and there's times that I didn't know if they believed that it was him or if I, if and but the more when i look at his mom's social media feed and the things that she says on in talks that she does and on the radio and, and podcasts and so on it's pretty obvious that she knows that it was him she sometimes talks about that there were multiple dread pirate roberts and and so on but um which wouldn't really help him that much which which no and i mean and, it's still life if the there reason, was two or three dread pirate roberts right? yeah I, I don't I, yeah i mean he admitted at a trial his defense was that there were multiple dread pirate roberts but he admitted at trial that there was um he said that he had started the site and that he had sold it when he was you know a year in and even if that were the case yeah you know there's still probably he probably would have gotten 50 years or something i don't know but it's interesting because as a parent, it's really difficult. What would you do? If, do you have kids? Um, no, but okay. I'd like to, but no, I don't. But know. so, as a parent, you, you look at your kids, and of, of course, they can do no wrong. They can yeah. do wrong. But but even if they do, you kind of how can you? What can you do? You know, and and so I really feel terrible for for his parents and his family, and there are some people in his family that believe that he was set up. You know, distant cousins, conspiracies, and, 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 and yeah, that I've heard from that that say that and. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, the, the evidence is so unbelievably overwhelming that it was Ross and Ross alone. When you look at all the ways that you could get away with a massive crime, even like the dark web, which is totally encrypted, 
you're still leaving this like massive paper trail. Well, you, that's the and thing. a murder well, mystery, you, you get away when like no one ever wrote anything down and only one person it's knows. It's funny, there's it. the, the FBI agents that were hunting him, they're downtown New York, and yeah. um, I believe it's the 23rd floor of the federal building. And they sit in an area called the pit. There's a tiny little area where they, you know, do their cases. And th- before the cybersecurity team was in the pit, it was the guys who did the organized crime hunting for the mafia folks. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is when the organized the mafia bosses were out there doing what they do, they were terrified of technology. Anything technologically related was terrible. Like they wouldn't even use a phone. Like they, they were would right. drive around. No, and they were so right. And they yeah. would drive around and use pay phones and so on. That's being so prescient about technology. It's like I don't know if it's going to fuck us over now, but it's definitely going to fuck us over in a decade. No, if we completely. Embrace any of this shit. And and they were completely right. So now you have the cybersecurity guys, and what they do is they hunt people that use technology, and that's it. And and Ross Ulbricht, I think was the perfect example of that. He started this website. You know, he did tell a couple of people's, you know, which I'm sure he regrets massively, but everything he did, he was very private in real life and very public in private life on online. He he talked to all of his employees using chat logs. Yeah. He kept diaries, photos, spreadsheets of his business. Um, all the bitcoins were, could be traced back to him, like tens of millions of dollars in bitcoins. The uh, problem um, was he was a person. Kind of. I mean, he like he wanted he, to express himself exactly. as a human being. And then also he split his computer into two different segments. One was for Ross and one was for the Dread Pirate Roberts. And, I know. Like and, another like in a novel, two nail on the head. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> like these, these moments in the book where you're like, wow, this is wild. But then he like would email with his girlfriend and and he was on dating i mean he was literally running the site ordering hits selling all these drugs and using okcupid i like empathize with him it's like oh i pay for a vpn it's like i look a year later it's like oh i never turned the vpn on like you know <laughs> yeah, like yeah yeah there's but, always a li- there's always oh, in technology a like are you really going to do this perfectly no you you're know? never going to do it perfectly in technology and that's what they all the agents hunting him were, were hoping for all of those things he had left behind a trove of information that it was kind of mind-boggling to get through there was 2.1 million words of chat logs alone um, and did you read like do you have access I had to, to all read this? i had to read all um i, I did get access so what like what's the process as a reporter you're like i want everything from this case yeah but they don't give you everything yeah. you have to find other ways to get it so um, how, how do you get it i can't tell you that okay so uh, let's talk okay let's talk about that i remember at the time he he was convicted there was an interview that he had done for yep. forbes after that, I, there was a Wired story, I think, by Andy Greenberg. And then I think after the trial, Josh Behrman came out with like two stories that sort of detailed the law enforcement thefts. Mm-hmm. So you're like sitting there, you're in the courtroom, you're like, shit, I got to get a book done in a year. Like, what's your strategy? My strategy is to, to, with all of these long form stories I do, whether it's the American Kingpin or it's the Twitter book or it's the Elizabeth Holmes story in Vanity Fair or yep. whatever it is, is to try to tell the people like Andy and Josh and all those folks that know the story, the version of the story they don't know, mm. um, and to go as truly deep as you possibly can. So I could have written American Kingpin in a way that approached the story with all the facts that all the people that had been covering it already knew, and, and the people who didn't know the story would have enjoyed it. But if I do it for the Andys of the world to, to read it and learn stuff, then the other folks will will it'll still be a great story and and I've been able to kind of tell a story to everyone and and so I just kind of try to think of it from a from a point of view that has not been covered and one of the things that actually started me on that route was there's an unbelievable story uh, when JFK died um, every single reporter went and covered the funeral from the perspective of you know the White House and so on and so forth and there was one reporter from I believe the Washington Post who went to the grave digger's house the guy who had to dig uh, the grave Jimmy Breslin I yeah, want to say Breslin, that's yeah. right yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, he went to, and and I read it again recently and it's amazing he talks about what he had for breakfast that morning and it's this unbelievable it's very short yeah 800 words or something like that and it won a Pulitzer, and it's such a compelling story because it it first of all humanizes it, and second of all, it shows you a side of the story that you didn't know. So you're looking okay. One thing you've got is all these chat logs, and it seems to me like you've got some of his friends or his girlfriend. Yeah. So so you, you've got the challenge of trying to get people to talk to you. Yeah. Um, and believe it or not, for a book, um, it's actually a lot easier than from a, from a story. A lot of people mm. look at blog posts and newspaper articles and. And they think, eh, well, you know, if it gets if it's wrong, it's not a big deal; it'll float away. 
with magazine features, they 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 want to talk to you more because they know that it's going to have a bigger impact and at, especially like long form stuff. I mean, and yeah. then with books, you know, people actually sometimes line up to talk to you because you're kind of setting the historical record. Yeah, because you're setting bit. the story, and people yeah. get that um, yeah. for whatever reason they get that. Like um, I'm particularly interested in his longtime girlfriend Julia. Julia yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so like this is someone who could have ended up in jail, but probably. Um, shouldn't have ended up in jail. Correct. And tried to fight Ross to stop the site and yep. so on and so forth. And then there are friends of his that knew about it and people he'd gone to school with that put two and two together and realized it was probably the right guy, that it was was the, the Dread Pirate Roberts and so on. But one thing that I did was I, you know, we uh, taking this treasure trove of information, we created a database, my researcher and I, and what we did was we went online and we got all of Ross's Facebook stuff, all of his Twitter stuff, his... Uh, LinkedIn, Google+, YouTube videos, things he liked, commented on online. We figured out his usernames and did Google searches and pulled it all together. We got thousands of photos, both from friends, from Facebook, uh, from his computer. And then we got the chat logs, the diary entries, the stuff that was put in evidence by the, the, the FBI and DEA and so on and HSI. And then I conducted hundreds of hours of interviews with the agents involved, Jared Yegan, Chris Tarbell. So Were you competing with other reporters? Like, is someone else working on a book about this? No, the, um, but just to just to finish oh, up sorry. with that. So no, no. It's, um, so and we put it in a database, and we built yeah. a little database where we we could search by time. So uh, every yeah. photo has a timestamp, and it's got GPS location. And so if you look at what the Dread Pirate Roberts is doing. And, you, and then you look at what Ross is doing on social media and you look at the photos and all these things that's the story it tells. Social is, media made reporting so much easier. It's so <laughs> much easier. It's, it's I mean, it literally has changed. You, so you pretty much writing. know where he was on any like what was happening on oh, yeah. any day not, of the two years that Silk Road. Was yeah. Happening. And I know what he was wearing. What he ate. And I, what and sometimes what he ate and who he was with. And uh, is that you, almost too much information at some point where you're just like, yeah, oh, yeah. fuck. Like, no, it's, I mean, I, I if I did the math, um, I would say. On my computer, when I was in the middle of reporting, there was probably, I would say, five, six million words of stuff on there, um, uh, you know, from court transcripts to you name it, um, to try to get through. And, and it's it's like it, it makes your head spin just, yeah. you know, just thinking about it. But but if you start to think of it in a very cinematic way, like those murder mysteries, mm -hmm. um, uh, you can start to kind of like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. Yep. You can start to kind of place – you put little – you know when you're putting a jigsaw puzzle together and you put um, – like three or four pieces of the match, and you're like, oh, I've got those, and I'll put those to the side, and so on. You can do the same thing with your reporting, um, and at the end of it, you can start to piece it all together. I always, I, I, this is like not really long-form podcast material, but I've got the author of the book about this, and I've been saying this for a long time, so it's great. I get like a free question. So it's like, if Ross Ulbricht had just gone to a country with really, really lax extradition rules... One of these countries like that you go if you're like a Russian oligarch and you've like committed some crimes, right? And, and he just known. had lived out his days there. Could have he gotten away with it? Yes. Was his mistake staying in America? His mistake was hubris, honestly. His mistake was not building the website. It was not selling the drugs or ordering the hits or any of that stuff. His mistake was hubris. And I think that's the mistake a lot of people make. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is this is a book about people and ambition. Yeah. Every single person in the book is ambitious because they want to leave a mark on the universe. And and but they, they like still want to live in San Francisco while they're making a mark on the universe. Yeah, exactly. But he, I mean, if he if he would have walked away a few months before he was caught in the library, they would have never caught him. Yeah. Um, where do you go from here? What's next? If you have ideas, I'd love to know. Um, uh, the driverless car thing was fascinating. I it is, like but to it's hard to. It's a little hard to too write early. It's um, it's a little too early. I was in San Francisco and saw one of the Uber cars go by, and both guys were on their phone, and I was like, "Wow!" And then the car ran a red light. <laughs> no, it didn't do anything, but uh, but yeah, they've they've. Uh, no, look, I think um, if you have any ideas for 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 a new book, I, w I would love to hear them. It's um, there's a part of me that wants to that, that is thinking about a, um, not a memoir because I'm not that cool yet, but um. A story about when my mom passed away uh, and that experience. It was a very abrupt thing that happened over a two-week period, and she was fine one day and then found out that she had pancreatic cancer and, and, and had two weeks to live and died literally two weeks of the day later. And and the it was a very um, uh, funny, believe it or not, but all, it was like dark comedy kind of uh, two weeks, and there was all these things that happened, but it was also a, um, a, a very formative experience. And there's part of me that's kind of itching to write that story, but, you know, I don't know. We'll see. All right. Thank you very much, Nick Bowden, for My pleasure. Uh, Thank coming you. in.
And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thank you very much to Nick Bilton. His new book, American Kingpin, is out now. Thanks to our editor, Mickey Capper. Thanks to our intern, Courtney Harrell. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you to our sponsors, MailChimp and Audible. Audible has a six-part Audible original series called Ponzi Supernova, which sheds new light on Bernie Madoff and the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. This is so up my alley. Uh, journalist Steve Fishman chases the real story, talks to Madoff himself. He's got interviews with the SEC, the FBI. Uh, there's a lot you don't know about this story. You can listen to Ponzi Supernova now for free on Audible or wherever you get podcasts. So wherever you're listening right now, you just type in Ponzi Supernova. Check it out. Totally free. We'll be back next week.